This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C and welcome to The Breakfast Grill. On today's Breakfast Grill, we are in conversation with Frank Van Eyck. He's the CEO of Holland Circular Hotspot, a private public platform that facilitates the transition to a circular economy at a very much international level by bringing on board government authorities, knowledge institutes and especially businesses. A very good morning to you, Frank. How are you doing? Hi, Philip. Great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Why are the Dutch experts in this part of the ecosystem? Well, uh, I think we have to go back a little bit to our history. We probably, we no, we do live in the most vulnerable delta of this planet. Uh, uh, we had to work together to keep our feet dry since the Middle Ages. So it makes us collaborative, innovative. And then we were early industrialized, densely populated. So we had to work together and innovate again to keep our cities livable and the economy viable. And we are, we are a country without natural resources. So for us, it makes sense to keep the resources we have in circulation as long as possible. So call it fertile soil for a circular economy uh, movement. The first ones who were actually moving in the Netherlands were, I think, the multinationals. You know, the big, uh, the big corporates, uh, if they have a new innovation, it probably takes them two years. Then uh, they have an ID. Then a permit is one year. Building a plant is two years. And then their plant is in operation for 30 years. So they have to anticipate the future, their future markets. Mm. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that uh, in 30 years there will be a different uh, carbon uh, dioxide price. Uh, at the same time, there were these impatient startups who wanted to change the world. When, yeah. when our government saw that there was so much movement from the multinationals and from the startups, they say, hey, let's embrace this movement. Let's have the most far-reaching governmental policy in the planet at that time. Let's try to be completely circular in 2050. And in uh, now, eight years from now, we want to be to halve the use of non-renewable resources in our country. That's that's massive. That's a moonshot. So born out of necessity. And what was very interesting in this point, you say, is that the private sector, the corporates kind of led the way and the government saw the key you know, decisions and the, the impact that the private sector was doing. Usually we would always think that governments take the lead, but in Holland, it was the other way around. I, I think uh, sometimes, uh, let's say, government is following the movement which are in society and then they regulate it. Government has a role to play, you know. They, In the end, they show the, uh, the direction and the boundary conditions. But if you look at a planetary style, did uh, uh, Elon Musk wait for the president of the United States to make legislation for electric cars? No. He saw an opportunity and then regulation has to follow. It's the same mm. with the platform models. Uh, there was a need in society and then regulation has to follow. And I think with uh, circular economy, it's, it's the same. The businesses, uh, uh, small and large, saw the opportunity and then society has to adjudge. But, but mind you, nobody can do this transition alone. Yes, I guess the question is applicability in Asia-Pacific. You know, the challenges you see in Holland, Netherlands are very different from what we see over in Asia, isn't well, it? Yes and no, Philip, if I'm uh, allowed to disagree with you. Uh, when I look, uh, look around uh, in, uh, also in Malaysia, you are doing circular economy. But you, you call it different. You call it waste management, resource efficiency, climate adaptation, climate mitigation. Uh, but it's there. But it's too small. It really needs to scale. But you're doing it. Uh, Why can't we scale it? Why is it so difficult for us here in Malaysia to scale? Is that the key difference between your country and us in which you are able to get that support to scale it? Whereas here we just don't get that resources and catalyst to do that. I think uh, we are blessed with our cooperative nature. Uh, government and businesses already for many, many years are used to work together and uh, to look at the opportunities uh, and work on it collaboratively. Uh, the other thing is our mentality, let's say, just do it. Just try out. Mm. Don't be afraid to, willing, to be willing out. to take risk, essentially. 
you either win or you learn. We can't afford to wait till a perfect world that we have uh, anal analysis paralysis, that we have, we know all the ins and outs, and then we try to move. Then, then we're all dead. Then the planet is lost already. Uh, we need to move. We need to speed up. And uh, by learning uh, and making the occasional mistake, you can improve your business model, adapt it, learn from it, and then scale it. So either you win or learn. I think those are the two options you present there. Very interesting. But so when we talk about the impact you've delivered over across in Asia-Pacific, I mean, the actions and the programs you've launched here, what have been the results, right? What have been the wins and what have been the learnings then? Well, I think we're, we're just starting. Eh? The Netherlands is seen as a circular economy hotspot, but there's something called a circularity gap report. And the Netherlands so far is the leader in the results. We are 24.5% circular, meaning 75.5% not circular. So mm. we have a long, long way to go. If you were to look at Asia, I think these numbers would go down uh, towards the global average, which is probably 8.6% circular. So uh, we have to do a lot, but it starts with, let's say, awareness. Climate change doesn't stop at the border. Uh, our resource flows go, let's say, span the globe. So we have to tackle this at the international level. And by having discussions between the value chain players, uh, let's say, uh, suppliers, uh, customers. Uh, I think that's the start of a conversation and uh, changing, uh, changing how you can do things differently. And in every, uh, let's say, market segment, from plastics to agri-food, you can do lots of things. It starts with design, designing things uh, in a different ways. Think about bio-based uh, materials instead of, uh, let's say, materials from oil and gas. Uh, new business models. Uh, why do you sell a product? You can also have mm. the product as a service, and it stays in one hand. You can stretch the lifetime, uh, make it refurnishable, repairable, and you have a residual value at the end. Uh, so great ideas. I mean, I hear so many interesting ideas, right? Again, but it comes back to scaling it up per se. What is required to scale? Is it really expertise or there has to be some capital involved, right? And in the experience when you've seen, right, and how you scale things, right, what is the best way to provide that capital to enable that economies of scale to take place? I think uh, things uh, start to make progress if you have something like a value chain approach. It's never an individual approach. So you need to have a few actors of the value chain together. So a startup and a multinational. Think um, an example in the agri-food chain is the vegetarian butcher. Let's mm. uh, let's say plant-based proteins. Uh, in the end, they were acquired by Unilever, and now they span the globe. So their impact of their business model, their ID is now, uh, let's say, growing exponentially. Uh, but they couldn't have done it alone. If you look at well, upcoming trends like chemical recycling, just as, as a sidekick, the best recycling countries in the world can only recycle 50% of their plastics. That means the front runners can, can't recycle 50%. Uh, maybe chemical recycling can offer an option for these 50% that can't be recycled today. But to do that, you need a startup in chemical recycling, which works with a chemical uh, a mm. company. The chemical company uh, can scale up massively because the size of the chemical industry is so much larger than just waste management, for instance. What, who is the most effective catalyst and bridge? I mean, is that what your role is, right? To bring all these different actors of different sizes and intentions across the value chain together. What has been the most difficult part? Is it building trust between each of the parties about where they extract value across the chain? 
it's very important that you have a shared sense of urgency. That's this, uh, this factor of awareness. It's also important that uh, everybody realizes that you can't do it together. And then you have to look at the most promising business models, so and the most scalable models. So don't go for incremental change. Go for the things that really can make an impact. And once you mm. realize that, uh, you realize that future models are probably a little bit more balanced. It's not just about keeping materials in, uh, in circulation. It's also about renewable energy. It's about social equality, respect for biodiversity. Uh, that means also that, let's say, the division of profits in such a value chain is probably more equal. And once you're in that uh, together, I think you get the best ideas. But there is initial distrust, so it's also about uh, cultural differences. We tend to think today in liability instead of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, sharing. Maybe the future is uh, less about copyright, but more about the right to copy. Mm. Um, it starts with a, with a good conversation, shared interest, and uh, going down it together with a clear division of tasks. And you start with doing pilots, you scale it up, you adjust. Uh, you will see that you need regulation to change, so you involve the government as well. And by that, it's a learning by doing is probably the mm. best way uh, to say it. But with the, always with the clear goal in mind where you want to go, but the path can be different and can change during the course. I was going to press you a bit more about government role here, the government's role in kind of bringing all these actors together. Holland Circular Hotspot is a very interesting piece, right? It's an entity from the, from the government of Netherlands and its goal is to facilitate different actors in its place, right? But it takes an international national state, but in Malaysia specifically, where do you see the government's role specifically here is in kind of accelerating the circular economy then? I think you, if you look at waste mentioned there, I think the government has to uh, set a direction where you're going. Businesses can live with insecurity, can't mm. live very well with insecurity. If they know we're going in a certain direction, they can live with going to the left, they can live with going to the right. As long as they know it, then they can plan for it. So what you don't want to have is changes every year or every two years. So give clarity about the direction. And I think talking about circular economy, uh, waste management, the direction is probably clear. Uh, we have to uh, follow the carbon goals. Uh, we have to, let's say, clean up our own mess, the waste management. I think the direction is clear, but you have to walk the talk there and say the next action. And government can give the direction, create the boundary conditions, but do it in a way that you involve businesses. In the end, for instance, waste management companies have to invest. So involve them in this process. Uh, also incentivize uh, companies. Uh, uh, you can work with the carrot and the stick, no? Uh, punish some things you don't want to have, uh, reward things that you really definitely want to have. So you can ban plastic straws uh, or free plastic bags. Um, if you think about producer responsibility, if you have a very lousy product that can't be recycled, you pay more than if you have a super recyclable product. That's a way that the government can give incentives. But it's also bringing actors together. It's a very Dutch approach uh, in a conversation, giving the new direction for innovations. So the government can do more than just regulation. They can be a partner in this uh, in this process. The concern is that they're usually the source of bureaucracy, isn't it? They're the source that hampers innovation. I mean, we talk about them being a facilitator, but the reality is most people here on the ground think of them as bureaucrats who actually put you know, impedance to innovation here. Um, look at it another way. I think from a government perspective, the price of not acting uh, will be tremendous. If you think about plastics, plastic soup, uh, what will be the cost for tourism in Malaysia, for, uh, let's say, uh, fisheries in, in Malaysia, or for public health if you don't act? Um, so it, asks, it does ask for... Uh, it, it requires leadership from government to look beyond the political terms of maybe three to four years, a uh, bit faster sometimes, uh, <laughs> and go, go further and, uh, let's say, uh, plan a route towards, a towards the future. 
On The Breakfast Grill, I'm in conversation with Freik van Eyck, CEO of Holland Circular Hotspot on the circular economy, as we understand how the Netherlands can bring their expertise to the table. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back on The Breakfast Girl. We have with us Freck van Eyck, CEO of Holland Circular Hotspot on the circular economy. You know, Freck, we were just having a conversation just now about the importance of collaboration between uh, different parties, right? Private sector, government, big, small, multinationals, entrepreneurs in how we kind of move forward with the circular economy here. Give us an example of something tangible that's taken place between Holland and Malaysia with respect to driving the circular economy agenda here. What we often see uh, happening is uh, that there are coalitions of the willing which have gathered into a platform or a circular economy hub. And there are uh, people from government in there, front-running businesses, sometimes NGOs, sometimes knowledge institutes, but they all uh, realize that there's a need for change. And the activities they typically do in such a platform are awareness raising, uh, discussing new regulation like extended producer responsibility, uh, showing the best practices around, uh, for instance, in in Malaysia, uh, providing access to finance. Typically, circular economy models have a higher cost up front, but a yeah. far better total cost of ownership. Mm. Um, so that asks for changes in the regular in in well in the financial models. Uh, um, Another thing, uh, what uh, what they can do is convince the government to uh, to walk the talk and give the example by public procurement. It can be a tremendous pull factor. Imagine fifteen percent of GDP on average is public procurement. Let's say you start with ten percent of that with circular business models to promote them it can mm. make a difference in a country that's it, very promising it most definitely can and I wonder you know you've toured around the world you've really championed this whole circular economy uh, you know perspective everywhere can you help me contrast how Malaysia's uh, approach and progress is you know relative to the rest of the region and the world you know how far ahead are we or perhaps behind so there's, I think, good news and bad news. Uh, let's say, start with the bad news. In waste management, you're a little bit lagging behind. Um, you still landfill a lot. There's hardly mm. a separation at the source. And I think you you should probably do uh, a little bit more than you're doing today. No, you definitely should be doing uh, mm. doing more. What's stopping us from doing that more? Um, good question. Actually, if I'm honest, I don't know because you see the reality, uh, you're losing resources for your economy. Uh, you see the impact of pollution. Uh, there is awareness uh, at the individual level, at consumer level. Uh, what's stopping you? I should ask you. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I'm worried that you're asking me this question because I think you're right, right? It's, it's, a, it's really finding that opportunity where all the right actors are in the table together. And I wonder if it's a concern about the cost of doing this or the perspective that you know, when we think about circular economy, it means a declining economy because we have always been having this mindset that, you know, when you do this kind of thing, you're kind of degrowth. You're not actually driving a growth agenda. How do you debunk that myth that actually a circular economy does not mean a declining economy? Let's let's start with the business perspective. Uh, first of all, you have to realize that business as usual is not an option. Think about the China baby milk scandal mm. or the Volkswagen emission scandal. What happened to the value of those companies? So, uh, business as usual is not an option. But think about the platform models, how it can grow your market. And if you give something a second, a third or a fourth life, same amount of materials, four times as much value. Uh, that's very interesting. And typically, circular economy is a collaborative model. So you yeah. talk to each other. That's talking also about risk management. You anticipate the risk. So your risks are far better under control. And it's a no-brainer if you use less energy, less water, less materials. It's less cost. 
So I get the logic, right? You're kind of saying it's about sweating the asset fundamentally. Mm. You're basically mm. trying to get the most out of that asset, right? Rather than trying to ditch it or dump it and sending it to the landfill. It's it's also a, a resilience. Um, I think in, in Europe, we talk a lot about access to resources now. We had a wake-up call with the Ukraine war. Mm. Uh, we're very dependent on Russian gas. But if you think about the dependency of rare metals that we desperately need for energy transition, mobility transition, the dependency there is far greater. So by having circular business models, you keep these materials closer to you. That means uh, it's a strategic access to, uh, let's say, materials you need for your uh, future economy. But I wonder whether, you know, for, for companies or governments to really take action, they really need the consumer to make the call. They need to say, look, I want it this way, right, as opposed to that way, the old way of doing things. Do you think that's the key thing that's required here, that you need consumers, voters to put pressure on governments and multinationals to do it? For example, like Apple, right, with their whole claim to be a circular company, I think it's born not out of their own goodness, but essentially about customers. They're consumers consumers wanting it. Well, look at the Volkswagen emission scandal. Uh, let's say we live in a digital world, man. That means uh, everybody sees what's happening and they don't do the, they, they say, oh, stop, uh, we can't do this. Uh, wake up. If you think about uh, plastic soup, we are aware. We see mm. it around us and we're also concerned, consumer concern about the plastics uh, in the food chain and in uh, in our body's future and the, the health implications that might have. So for plastic, I would say there is a consumer concern. We have some very big brands here, which are also in the top 10 of contributors to the plastic soup. Uh, there comes a moment that they're no longer the heroes, but then they're the bad guys and uh, people held them uh, responsible. Do you worry that, you know, you push very hard for this whole circular economy, but at the same time, you know, Europe is hard with this image of, you know, being a waste exporter of waste, right, to the developing countries and such, right? So you, with the best of intentions, go out there, try and push for this circular economy, try to find ways to restructure waste management. But you see Europe still exporting waste at an exponential amount, right, over across to developing Asia. Do you think this process mars your image and a project? Well, I think it's definitely true that there has been... uh, uh, a huge amount of exports from uh, Europe, North America. Um, if I look at the regulatory side, I think uh, we definitely have lots of controls in places uh, that things change. Uh, but still not enough, better. right? 77% increase since 2004, 33 million tons of waste to non-EU countries. We are, uh, let's say, uh, as an economy, as a planet, as a whole, we are growing. The economy is growing, waste firms are, are growing, and uh, waste management infrastructure is not growing along. Um, take waste management, it asks for regulation, but also for enforcement. And I think we have to do a lot on both sides Mm. in Europe, uh, but also in the receiving end uh, to to, to stop that. Um, What we do now is basically say, okay, we still have to deal with waste. Waste is basically a problem, uh, solving a problem of the past. We recycle the past, uh, but nothing stops us today to keep resources in the flow as long as possible. And if you look at design, design is anticipating the waste flows of the future. You can, let's say, design them out. You can minimize them. So you don't have to wait for 150 years like the Netherlands has been working on waste management until you're ready for the next phase. You can work on a circular economy right now, today, while you clean up, let's say, the past uh, with waste management and you anticipate the future by design. And that's what worries me because early on we had this conversation about where Netherlands was, right, in its circular economy. You're at about 25%. But you've had a long history of doing this, right, and you're only at 25%. And I would 
challenge you to think that perhaps the first 25% is probably the easiest part, that the hard part is actually in the last 25%, moving from that 75, 80% to 100%. Is that going to be where it's most difficult? So we are now only just, we are really at the tip of the iceberg. We're only doing the easy things now. And that actually it really calls for really, really difficult decisions we need to make, right? To hit that 100% then. No, I think I think I'm of a different opinion. I think we starting to reach a little bit of uh, of skill that uh, that we can um, get a better impact. Uh, circular economy also requires for some changes in regulation. Uh, if these changes start to happen, you can grow much faster. You have the terms about new standards, norms, uh, uh, end of waste status, for instance. Uh, make uh, agreements in new trade relations, for instance, between Europe and Malaysia. That, that could be a potential boost to the economy, but it's very likely we'll also have new agreements in it on, let's say, sustainability standards. Uh, uh, and if you want to deal with the other, uh, let's say, trade with the other country, you have to obey, uh, let's say, the standards of the other region. How many years behind is Malaysia from Netherlands in terms of its achievement of its circular economy goals? How many years? Do you have a number to that? Um, I don't. In waste management terms, I think uh, you probably need uh, uh, another 10, 20 years to catch up for sure. Mm. But because we are here with a group of companies, being in a short, short circuit, you can, uh, let's say, or leapfrog is maybe not the right word, but you can definitely accelerate. Uh, uh, we worked on waste management for 150 years. Probably we made a few mistakes down the road. You can avoid those mistakes and uh, immediately take the best practices, adjust them to your region, uh, improve on them, and uh, let's say uh, cut some corners there. So I think you don't have to wait to work for 150 years. In other segments like manufacturing, you are a super manufacturing hub. If you would adopt remanufacturing practices, uh, you could be the remanufacturing hub of, of Asia. Mm. Um, and if you look around the world, right, what lessons from the developing world can the Netherlands take from in achieving its circular economy target by 2050? I think we lost the skill set. Uh, if I go to certain countries, uh, you see that, uh, let's say, also on the street, the remanufacture, also in, 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 in Southeast Asia, the, the skill set to uh, remanufacture things is here. Mm. Um, maybe not always as professionalized as it should be, but definitely much better than, uh, than in our place. Uh, if you look at... Uh, um, a regenerative agriculture. I see very good practices in what we call developing countries. Uh, the Netherlands is probably the most efficient agro-food country in the world, but it's still very much a linear economy. We have to go to a more local, uh, let's say, regenerative agriculture. Uh, less volume, but maybe more value. And we can learn from the practices which are still in place uh, here. So remanufacturing, regenerative agriculture are some of the areas where the developing world can contribute right, and take the lead in terms of moving towards that zero waste environment we want to live in. I think also if you look at the palm oil industry, you still have with the palm, let's say the the the, the water fraction after the, the pressing of the oil. I think you could do a lot there and just cascading the residues take the resources out, use the energy. Uh, you could valorize your existing, uh, let's say, business models also much better. And there you can reach scale. Um, so I think that's definitely an area where you could improve and we have some companies with us which could definitely help you there. When you look at collaboration then, we talk about this win-win, right? The biggest collaboration, I think, will be at COP27, where we want to see everybody across the table, right, work together to achieve these massive goals. What do you want to see in COP27? Um, we always say that circular economy is a secret weapon uh, in, uh, let's say, uh, reaching the climate goals. 
If you look at, let's say, greenhouse gas emissions, approximately half of them is uh, linked to making products. If you adopt circular business model, 50% of those greenhouse gas emissions can be taken away. So if you combine it by going circular, uh, 25 of the emissions are taken away, not as a cost, but as a business model. And what's more beautiful than saving the planet and earning money? Freck, thank you so much for your time. That's all the time we have for today on The Breakfast Grill. Freck van Eyck, CEO of Holland Circular Hotspot on the Circular Economy. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.